Blog Talk Radio. Happy Memorial Day weekend to all of our fellow Mets fans out there. This is Rich Sparago, otherwise known as Met Fan Rich on Twitter, and also Mets Killing Me. And you are listening to the 55th edition of a Metsian podcast with Sam Rich and Mike. And we're so happy that you're able to spend some time with us, whether it's this evening live or on the archive version. We're looking forward to talking some baseball, even though we don't have any baseball on the field. Um, there's always uh, stuff to talk about, and we'll certainly find some things to discuss, and I'm sure I'll have a very lively discussion. And to that point, let me bring on my co-conspirators in the Metzian podcast first. Let's see, where shall we start? Let's start in the borough of Manhattan, at least. That's where I think he may be. You know, our, our Mr. Sam Maxwell gets around a bit. Um, he hails from the borough of Manhattan. And so, Sam, most importantly, uh, and yes, we do call you the CEO of our podcast, the whole thing, as let's not forget, was your idea, and you keep it going, and thank you for that. And Sam, most importantly, happy Memorial Day weekend. I hope that you are safe and healthy. And so where does life find you on this Sunday night of Memorial Day weekend? Happy Memorial Day weekend to you and all our listeners, Rich. Thank you so much. Uh, In fact, I am very much on Manhattan, although I'm right at the edge of it currently on one of Robert Moses' quote-unquote gems, uh, the Henry Hudson Parkway, a.k.a. the West Side Highway, coming up on the 79th Street exit, although I'm not getting off there. But I'm looking at the sun setting across uh, in New Jersey, and um, it's, it's quite the nice day. You see a lot of people out. Everybody's generally following protocol, though, uh, you know, in terms of wearing masks and wearing gloves. Uh, obviously, it sounds like the masks are the most important part of the droplets. So uh, the numbers are, are going down, even though, uh, you know, one death of this is too many. Um, but it's, it's still nice to see that we're trying to figure out not just baseball, but, but how life itself will go on. That is for sure. And so let me say good evening and welcome to my other co-conspirator in the Metsian podcast, Mr. Mike LeColent. Mike, you're usually where we expect you to be from the great borough of Brooklyn, which is home for you. So how are you doing tonight? Doing well, chugging right along. Uh, You know, otherwise, no outstanding news is good news in this situation. Definitely true. And so... Tonight we have a very special guest joining us. Actually, um, it's a voice that you've heard before on the Metzian podcast, and that would be the voice of Mr. Jeff Cohen, who is one of the principals behind Baseball and Barbecue, which is a podcast. So, Jeff, first of all, happy Memorial Day weekend. Thank you for joining us. And if you don't mind, sir, please tell us a little bit about Baseball and Barbecue, where people could find it, what you do there, and that kind of thing. Well, thank you very much for having me back. Appreciate it. Uh, happy Memorial Day to you guys. Uh, baseball and Barbecue, we've been, uh, we, lately we've been interviewing a lot of authors, both from the uh, baseball and the barbecue space. 
Uh, we've been lucky enough to have on Anika Orak, who uh, who wrote a book, The Incredible Women of the uh, World American Girls Baseball Professional Baseball League. We actually had on Jared Diamond uh, from the Wall Street Journal, who wrote Swing Kings. We had Mark Healy, who I'm sure you know of, uh, who wrote Gotham Baseball. We had on uh, Fred Topel, who has a new venture called BT Talks Baseball. He's uh, written a couple of Mets books. And in the future, we've had on, we're going to have on some some baseball authors, you know, to fill the time. I've been doing a lot of reading, so no baseball, but I've been reading a lot of baseball books, and including Michael Stahl, who who wrote the book Big Sexy, Bartolo Colon, uh, Mike Mitchell Nathanson, who wrote a book about Jim Bowden, John Tessa, who wrote a book about Yogi, and John Shea, who wrote about Willie Mays. Uh, the book name of that book is Twenty Four. Those are all upcoming podcasts. Uh, you know, in the future, but we can find you. We can find us at Amazon, you know, at uh, Apple Podcasts, uh, Buzzsprout, any anywhere you find podcasts, you can find us. Fantastic, thank you, Jeff. And that does sound like good stuff. Um, and that's where we are. You know, we're, we're talking about authors. And as I sit here doing this podcast, I'm watching um, a replay of Game Seven of the '86 World Series. As we all know. Uh, because of the COVID-19 pandemic, there is no live baseball. There are no live sports. So before moving to baseball, what we've been doing lately is just basically doing a uh, kind of a check-in to see how things are going and, um, you know, how everybody's been affected by the pandemic, how your, you know, your personal life is going and, um, and where you live and if people are, you know, following, not following. So, Sam, let's start with you because you know, you're right there in the epicenter, you know, you're in Manhattan. Um, you know, I know you mentioned earlier in your intro a little bit about how things are going, but, but what's the general feel? The cases are going down, which is great. Um, but is the city, you know, when I lived in the city, it, it would always be deserted on a holiday weekend. Uh, but is it more deserted than usual? What are you seeing in Manhattan? It's certainly more deserted than usual. I think that there, there is a number of people that generally would come in from, Westchester, Long Island, uh, New Jersey, uh, or Connecticut. Um, and I just don't think, even though, like, you know, there's a, there, there's a New Jersey license plate right in front of me uh, currently turning onto 44th Street, uh, but at the same time, I just don't think you see the supercharged uh, uh, visitors that, that come in. Like, and, and that's... And I keep saying it, too, that that, I think, is the number one thing that keeps this place as active every day is that. And it's, it's remarkable. I don't think I realized how many people drive into the city on a daily basis. Um, I do think that, you know, it has the, the uh, one of the smallest populations of the boroughs. Uh, but probably on any given day, there's the majority, you know, the, the, there's probably the most people of any borough probably on the island of Manhattan coming in on a daily basis, uh, whether that be by train, car, or else, uh, boat even. Um, in Manhattan, I, I just, I think that, you know, like some people uh, were, were joking that, you know, every day is uh, a day in August, basically. But I think it's even less than that. Uh, I, I think there's just that many people out of the city, uh, um, and whether it's it's residents or or not. Um, I'm going to completely shift gears real quick before we get started and, and go to uh, full check-in. But it, it's just you just mentioned Jim uh, Bouton, and 
what's so interesting is I've been reading some stuff and and in certain circles it's it's interesting that he he broke ground, but it was also considered that he uh he kind of was like a tattletale, like he was you know speaking the 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 secrets of the game, and it's interesting that that's also the the direction that with um what was his name mike mike fires uh mike Spears, uh with this recent scandal in baseball. Uh, that's what a lot of people were saying about him. So it, it's just interesting the way history repeats itself. Uh, and since we're, we're, you know, because of COVID, we're able to go down the uh, the uh, kaleidoscope of history because we have nothing else better to do sports-wise. Uh, it's just when you when you said the uh, the name of Bouton, it just made me think of all that. No, that that is, and and you know when you were saying it, it I like the way you put it down the kaleidoscope. Because that, that's where we are, you know, that we're finding other things to do. We're thinking about other things uh, because life's a bit upside down right now. And, Mike, I'll go to you. Um, you're, you, as, as you've mentioned in past podcasts, are an essential worker. So to a, to a certain degree, I would imagine life's the same for you, uh, albeit, you know, you're surrounded by things that are nothing like they typically are. So what's it like for you? Yeah, you nailed it. Uh, yeah, I'm out there, and, you know, I, I'm feeling pretty good about things. I, I, I understand what's going on out there, and I have empathy and sympathy with everything and everything that's going on, uh, everyone, I should say. Uh, but otherwise, yeah, you, as you say, I still have a lot of structure in my life. It really hasn't changed. I'm waking up every day. I'm going to work. I'm doing what I normally do. Uh, it's, it's just the worry of coming home and and, and potentially – bringing something home and disseminating it amongst family and loved ones. Uh, for instance, look, I, I was in Manhattan. I got a glimpse of Manhattan Island today. I uh, brought my wife to her, her, her mom's house, my mom-in-law. Uh, she was thrilled, you know, so, so that's a feel-good story right there. She was thrilled to see her daughter. I dropped her off. I didn't dare go inside because, again, I'm outside every day. I don't know what I can bring to other people, whether this has been in and out of me or if I'm just immune or asymptomatic. I don't know. Uh, to that effect, I will say I feel fine. Uh, now, if I can, you know, give, I guess, the last 10 weeks a report card, I will say, you know, New York City, I will give you an A-. minus. Nobody's perfect. Uh, but this last week, you know, kind of harmed your grade somewhat. At least from my viewpoint here in Brooklyn, it looks and it seems like people are deciding for themselves, you know, when they're going to reopen and, and when they're going to return to uh, a sense of normalcy. Uh, traffic has definitely been picking up. Uh, on there was a day or two out there where <laughs> it looked, you know, very, very typical uh, of a an otherwise normal situation. So, uh, you know, Rich, I, I, I can just say it's a weird time. It's a weird time. Look, uh, the guy, the, the grocery store, one of the workers around the corner from where I live, uh, he's an employee. The owner of the store, he's from India. And before any of this broke out, he went there to visit family, innocently enough. And he's still there. He's got trapped there. Obviously, he can't tra- he can't travel. So his lead employee over here is keeping things running for him. He knows six people who have already passed away, six people who were customers to the store right around the corner from him. I don't personally know that many, but he says six people he knows personally who have died, who have passed away during uh, this, this pandemic. Now, I have a neighbor four houses down. Uh, he's a friend of mine and uh, a buddy of his in his 40s. He passed away from the pandemic. 
so like we've been saying all along, we all know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody. You know, if not first person, definitely second or third person. So weird time, uh, you know, and let's roll with the punches. We can't stay shut down forever. You know what I say, haste makes waste. So let's try to go about this uh, smartly. And and the last thing I would say is, folks, if you go to Costco and they say you can't come in without a mask, that's not the government infringing upon your rights. That's Costco, <laughs> a business, enforcing their policy. You know, so let, let's understand what's at hand, folks. Take it away, Rich. Amen, Mike. Amen. Because remember what a mask does. What a mask does is prevents you from spreading it to someone else. And that, like I've said before, that someone else could be somebody's grandmother, somebody's dad, somebody's mom. You don't want to be responsible for that. Wear the damn mask. Okay, so we'll bring Jeff on. So, Jeff, I believe uh, Long Island is home for you. And um, if you could tell us, you know, are you in Nassau or Suffolk and what's life like there? Oh, I'm in Nassau County, and I live near Jones Beach. So I was, I sometimes take my bike and I ride down the bike path to Jones Beach, and you know, it it depends on the demographics. I see, you know, older people wearing their masks walking the walking the boardwalk, and I see younger people, you know, throwing the ball around, playing football, no mask. It's like they don't have a care in the world. It's it, it's really a really a dichotomy of of you know, all demographics. It, you know, people are, you know, the older people are spread out and they're more than six feet away, and, and, you know, having a conversation where the other kids are, they're hanging out like nothing on the care in the world. So it's very, very strange. Where I am, uh, I I work for a large worldwide company, and the CEO said that no one's going to lose their job over this, so I'm very grateful for that. Uh, I have been working at home. Although I can't believe I'm going to say this, I, I miss the commute sometimes. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, so I, I, I work at home and uh, still able to communicate via the Zoom and the telephone and, and everything else. And when I go out, wear the mask, uh, go into the store, you know, just be, be careful, be smart about it. Because, you know, you might not be sick, but, you know, you don't want to pass along to somebody. Else, you know, if you don't, you don't know. You might have symptoms you don't know. Uh, I, I do know of somebody who did pass away from it, and uh, a buddy of mine was in the hospital for you know two, three weeks. He was not on a ventilator, but he was uh, hospitalized, and now he's uh, just got to okay to go back to work where he was. So, uh, you know, got to be very careful and very smart out there. Can I just say that uh, uh, also I've heard I've heard that. You don't want to be, you don't want to put so many people under ventilators because then the body shuts down and stops fighting it. Uh, so I, I really like, I think once once somebody's on a ventilator, like 80% death rate or something along that line. So uh, it's it's interesting. There's, there's so many different things out there about this entire thing. Very true. And that's the problem. The problem is, there is no, I mean, they one approved treatment was just given FDA clearance for use in COVID-19 just a couple of weeks ago, um, but we're still not sure how to deal with it. You know, is the ventilator the right thing, the wrong thing? And like you just said, Sam, I've heard physicians speculate exactly what you just said, 
that ventilators could be absolutely the wrong thing to do because it puts the body into like almost like a coma where, you know, the ventilator's breathing for you and the body's not fighting anymore. So anyway, um, it's a rough situation. All we can hope for, you know, it's funny, not so much funny, but it's ironic. When I talk to people, what they say is, I'm not going to a game until there's a vaccine. I'm not getting on a plane until there's a vaccine. That seems to be the the presence of a vaccine seems to be the thing that will tip this into normalcy when that happens. Right now, it's kind of an uncomfortable thing. You know, we're opening up little things here and there, and people are, oh, I'm not sure I want to do that. Maybe, maybe not. But it seems like everybody's saying that this won't flip back until there's a vaccine. So with all that said, let's move to baseball because it's, um, you know, we certainly could talk about uh, pandemics all night, and and it's an unfortunate topic. So moving to baseball, here's where we are right now. Um, if when we did this show a couple weeks ago, if we talked about the potential for restarting the season, it, it didn't look good. You know, it just did not. It, it felt like the owners were going to propose that 50-50 revenue sharing, and there were all these other things, and it seemed like you were pushing a boulder uphill. Well, where we stand right now, you know, based on some current information, um, and I'll give you, uh, you know, uh, Hedges, Austin Hedges from the Padres, who's a player rep is saying we're making agreements and this thing is going to happen. And Ron Darling said last night, you know, that there definitely thinks there's no question that there's going to be baseball. He's not sure it's the right thing, but, you know, he thinks there's no question there's going to be for the obvious reasons. I mean, everybody's losing money right now. Everybody loses less money if you play. So now with that said, I want to highlight a couple of things of the current proposal. And there's so much here. What I think I'll do is maybe mention one or two things and then wheel it around and come back and mention other things because there's so much here to talk about. Let's start with this, okay? So let's start with if they do agree as they are expected to, the economics will probably be not the 50-50 revenue sharing. The, the economic proposal is expected to go from the owners to the players on Tuesday. And while everybody was saying it was going to be 50-50 revenue sharing and the players are going to shoot it down, now they're saying it's not going to be that at all. It's going to be the players get their prorated salaries, but a portion of it gets deferred. So this way it's not all paid out in a year when, it, when revenue is down. Now, personally, I think that's very fair. The players who are taking the biggest risk, they get their money, and they get it when they retire probably, which is probably when they'll need it. You know, They could probably live just fine on what they have now, and they'll get their money and they'll get it in the future the owners don't have to pay it out, you know, and, and lose their shirt in the process. It certainly seems that that would be fair. So, okay, so we have collectively bargained prorated salaries. We had the thing that leaked out this week that the owners said, but there's a clause in there that that'll change if there's no fans. And obviously the public turned on the players at that point saying, well, how can you expect your full salary when there's, there, there'll be no fans? And that's in the agreement. The players' union was irate about that. But apparently that's all okay now, or at least better. So let me go to you first, Mike, on this one. So do you think that's fair, that it's kind of like a a perfect compromise, I think, you know, because what's happening here is they have something collectively bargained. They're not completely turning their back on it, but they're deferring a portion of it to a a better time. So, Mike, what do you think of that? This is most certainly an uncommon time. Uh, but you have to keep this industry within context. They are a collectively bargained industry, and it will remain so when this pandemic passes. So I don't expect either party uh, to step far beyond 
their 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 custom boundaries, so to say. Uh, you know, we're still talking risk, financial risk, safe safety and health risks. Who assumes more? Who assumes less? Uh, the players. Deferred money, I do believe that is a very fair proposal. Uh, after all, the two parties settled on an agreement back in March for the prorated salaries. Uh, that was also a fair negotiation to all this. So I will stand firm in saying that the owners are the risk takers. They're the promoters. And players sign contracts and have uh, their terms of service the lay of the land. Now, whatever they can agree to outside of that, you know, will do nothing less than make them good, uh, good people of fine character. Otherwise, uh, look, the owners are into their second proposal so far, while the players' union is just sitting back and, and and listening to all the ownership's reasoning, you know, l- let's not forget the math, the recent math of how much owners speculated that they were going to lose. You know, we went from a number near four billion to something uh, <laughs> two thirds less. You know, one point whatever billion now. So there, there's tricky numbers and numerology going on there. They still won't open the books, and that's always been a point of contention for the union. So the 50-50 thing is still up in the air, but it does look like they want to move forward, Uh, and I do believe they'll negotiate in good faith. Uh, It just seems to me that, you know, the owner's side, their onus is on money and financial matters, and the player's onus seems to be on safety, clamoring too much over financial issues outside of what the owners propose that are outside of the boundaries of their collectively bargained agreements. So that's where I stand. I think the players' union, uh, in deferring salary, I think that's a very, very fair proposal. When they make that money back, Rich, as you say, it could come in their retirement you know, they'll agree to that. Uh, two parties can sit down and hammer that out. Uh, but as far as this season, uh, we're still we're still skating on thin ice, I, I, I believe. And, and time is ticking because if they're going to get this thing going, uh, they, they need to, you know, start getting busy insofar as preparation and, you know, quote-unquote spring training all over again and, and actually getting that out on the field. Uh, I do still have a concern over the collateral workforce involved and actually going forth with this season. So uh, thin ice, that's where I believe they still are. If you look, the, the union and the players are playing this uh, somewhat coolly, and, and the owners are the ones, like I say, are on their second proposal already. So they're the ones uh, hastening these negotiations, Rich. They are, and um, and again, it's expected Tuesday. We can only speculate what it is, but everybody's saying the 50-50 is off the table, and that it'll be this deferred, you know, you get your prorated, but you get it paid in, you know, out years and in, in years down the line. So, Sam, what do you think? Do you think this gives us um, 
some light here that you know maybe we can get this thing done? Oh yeah, for sure. Especially you know, obviously sources can change, but it seems like across the board, uh, you know, even even Ron Darling saying it. Um, it's not just it's not just newspaper guys. It's not just Barstool Sports and and other links that you sent us. You know, it, it, the, the things that it made me think of because I'm not about to really like start to pretend to completely understand any of this, any of the way the numbers work. If if somebody were to sit down and explain to me the machinations of it all, but the crazy thing, and, and you know, this is basically since the beginning of baseball and trying to make a buck off of it. It, it, it's these these things bubble to the to the forefront uh, and and cannot it's it's just debates that will be will be having as long as baseball and and people are alive. Um, so what, what what's so interesting is how big these corporations are and they're not publicly traded. Any other corporation that gets to the point of any individual team, let alone an entire organization of all of them. Uh, would be publicly traded. And, you know, when you're, we're talking about the books and, and this and that and the other, especially considering that the owners in the union have come together and said, we understand that it, it can't be the way it used to be where the owners are really the only ones uh, 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 profiting off of your skill. And not only that, you never have... Uh, the ability to go anywhere else unless the owner decides that you want that that he he will allow you to. Um, and I, I know that I went you know completely off off track there in terms of this specific what what this means. But I, I think what what's so remarkable about this entire thing, and especially a year out of the collective bargaining agreement. Um, is that it, it, there's so many things, not only in society, but in baseball, that COVID has forced to the top when it was just simmering down below. And, and those are some things that, that I think of when I, when I hear all of it. And, and uh, what, am I optimistic now? Yeah, I am optimistic because I, I, I do think, and especially because baseball's technically the first one, everybody else should be wrapping up other than football that is attempting to stay on schedule. Um, you know, baseball should be the first one to come back. And it, it, it's, you know, this entire thing has gone by so quickly that if they do get it done, we're going to have baseball before we know it. And that's exciting. It is. It is. And, Jeff, I'll go to you on this one. So the economics, what do you think? Do you think that maybe they have something to talk about here, a fair compromise, and, and maybe we can get this thing resolved? You know, I, I personally I'm very skeptical about it. I think uh, deferring is, is a, you know, is one of the ways to to get around it. That that's fine, but still, there's still some a lot of risk out there. I heard a interview with Steve Phillips, and he was saying that obviously TV revenue is the big uh, contributing factor toward toward uh, you know the salaries and stuff and whatnot. But if there's a second wave of COVID that comes around, say, in the fall, and they have to cancel the, the playoffs, that's where the big TV money comes into play. That's where the, you know, the MLB owners get, get most of their, 
they have revenue from, you know, KPNDs, merchandise, and all that. So if they're not, you know, if this thing comes back and it, 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 it impales the playoffs and they have to stop for some reason, the owners are really, really screwed, and the players will still get their money, which I, I totally get. Look, I'm not an owner's guy. I'm not a player's guy. I, I see this from a different perspective. I, I can tell you that as an accountant, there's a thing called on the balance sheet called retained earnings, where they take all the profits from the past and they put into an account that says retained earnings, and they can use that you know past profit to pay you know future losses, so they can cover it. But I can tell you, that without any revenue coming in, there's no expenses. That, you know, how are you going to pay your expenses, your expenses with player salary and all that? So I'm I'm still very skeptical, and I think this is really going to hurt the the collective bargaining agreement next time it comes up after the 2021 season. I think it's going to hurt free agency uh, after, well, if, if they have a season, but next free agency season, because all these deals that you're going to pay down the road, the free agents this upcoming year are, going to, are not going to see a, a big contract. In fact, I see it's going to be a lot of one-year contracts, and I think the next uh, CBA is going to be very contentious between the two parties. I'm just, uh, I, I'm not getting the woman fuzzy. Sorry, I, I just don't see it. Well, that's fair. And, and you, know, you mentioned the next CBA, and I think um, I don't want to ascribe this to the wrong person. It may have been Darling. It was somebody said that this actually could help. Like if they reach an agreement here on how to deal with the finances um, for the shortened season, it may actually help when it comes to um, when it comes to the next CBA to say, look, we sat down, we agreed here. And maybe we could agree again. And I think what they all recognize, what I'm hearing, you know, seeing both explicitly and, and you know, in between the lines, is that um, everybody recognizes that the sport cannot have another work stoppage. Everybody recognizes that, that they, at some point they have to put their differences aside, put their heads together, like Ron Darling said last night, lock themselves in a room and figure this damn thing out, not only for the short season this year, but going forward, because the game just can't take another hit. You know, let's face it. You know, when it took a hit in 94, it's less popular than it was then. Um, I hate to admit that, but it's true. And so you can't take a, a public relations hit, and I think everybody has to align around that cause and somehow figure not only this season out, but also – the subsequent years, and if they can agree on this, hopefully that would set a precedent. Maybe not, but hopefully. So let's go to the next part of what's out there, what, what we're hearing. And I'll, I'll lump two things together, then go around, and Sam, I'll go to you first. If they start around July 1st, and Mike, you were right, they do have to get something hammered out soon because we want to have what we're hearing is spring training in um, very early June and the start of the season around July 1st. Here's what we're hearing. 82-game season, right, that would end right around the normal time. It would end in early October, and then a 14-team postseason. So a couple more teams would make the playoffs. Um, so you have a ex slightly expanded postseason, and you have four more teams in the postseason. And, and you have that, and they want to have this all over by late October, very early November, because of what Jeff said, the fear of yet another spike where if that happened in the November time frame, which some are saying could happen, and it shut the game down, that's where the big revenue comes in, and they would miss that revenue. So 82-game season, um, expanded playoffs. I'm going to ask you what you think of that, and I'm going to ask you the money question. Here's the money question. 
if a team, well, somebody's going to win the World Series this year, we know that. Would you view it as a watered-down accomplishment, an accomplishment with a bunch of asterisks because it was won in a year like this? So, Sam, let's go to you first. Shortened season, expanded playoffs. Would the team that wins have to hang its head in shame, you know, so to speak? Um, or do you think, hey, it's fair for everybody, it would count just the same? Um, I may uh, go back and ask you some yes or no questions uh, here. In terms of the expanded playoffs, the expanded uh, uh, more teams, um, I think the idea would be to offset some of the unfairness of an, of, of who like if they had less teams rich in uh, an 82 game season and so it's like well we understand that that's basically only half a year so here why don't we give more of you a shot i think that has a lot to do with the nfl did that in 82 when they had the shortened season they expanded the playoffs so i think it's to give more teams a shot see okay and who won in 82 the nfl yeah, in the uh, NFL. The, uh, the 49ers. And with Montana? Yes. And and so and nobody really, like, remembers that in, in, like, the grand scheme of things. It's not talked about as much. So I think that that is something to consider about when looking at history. Um, obviously, that, there also wasn't a, a health crisis at the time. Um, and so from, from the perspective of whether or not I would consider, I think one way or the other, we're all in the same boat. We are, we're all being presented with the same cards, basically. And one way or another, we'll all remember that it's different, but we'll know that it was quite the ride with whoever, who, whoever it ends up being for. You know? and, and the Mets probably stand a good chance of at least being in those 14 teams, really, unless they completely blow their, their shot. Um, so, you know, it, it's just that we, we gotta, we, I don't know. I think it's also just however we feel it goes, you know, it, you, you kind of need to, to see how, how every bit, it, it's something that's probably going to be pretty fluid amongst, uh, you know, baseball fans alike, all different, you know, all different teams, you know, that, I mean, whoever wins is going to hear it forever, but at the same time, we're on the same boat. So it, it's a tough thing to answer, but I think I'm going to have to stay fluid. I, I think the grade is incomplete right now until we see what's going on. Fair enough. So we'll go to Jeff next on this one. So Jeff, shortened season, um, more teams in the playoffs. What do you think of that? You know, do you think it, do you think it, waters down the product too much, or you think we can call this a, a representative uh, facsimile of a baseball season? And do you think there would be an asterisk next to the winner? Well, uh, 82 game season, it's fair for everybody. Everybody has the same uh, amount of games, so that, that's fair there. Because unlike where in 81, where the Dodgers won the World Series, and they they weren't even the best team, obviously the best team that, at that time with the split season was the Reds, and they didn't even get in the playoffs. Here, I guess everybody has the same chance. So I'm, I'm fine with 82 games. I'm not thrilled with expanded playoffs, but that's, I understand why it's happening. If I, do I view this with an asterisk or, or something? You know what? As, as a Mets fan, I think, that if an, I think this would be the year the Mets would win because everybody would say, oh, that figures. 
Mets, uh, they missed one. It's not real because it's a short <laughs> season. It's true. I, I can so just true. see that happening. <laughs> I can just see that happening. But, yeah, I think, you know, this is a, a strange year, obviously. Twenty twenty. Anybody's going to say 2020 was a strange year. They they might not even have the division. They might do that three that three different division thing. So, yeah, it will be viewed as an asterisk. And, and I think the Mets have a very good shot of, of winning just like anybody else. But, like I said, it'll just – uh, as Mets fans, we just go that figures. Well, I everybody I know, I've said that to. This would be the year the Mets would win. When I'd have to follow this, everybody would have to chase me around saying your team could only win in a year when the rules are different. So, Mike, exactly. and, that, and that's the thing. We'd have to. We would have to. Sorry, real quick. We'd have to win back to back. We'd have to win back yeah. to back. Bottom line, we'd have Validate to. It, yeah. yeah, Mike. What do you think? Eighty-two games is reasonable. Uh, you know, extended playoff format, whatever, whatever they can do. Uh, if I'm one of those teams that has to sit out a week for a bye, I'm upset. You know, buys don't work in baseball. Uh, but otherwise, I'm in lockstep with, with, with Jeff. I mean, 1981 is the template. Uh, I don't see anybody putting an asterisk, asterisk next to the Dodgers championship. Uh, it's never been a point of contention, really. Uh, bottom line, if it's a great series, that's what people will remember most. And can I just I add like one, one? I just want to add one thing sure. to what I said. If they have a, if they play the playoffs in their home, I would, I would like to see them play the playoffs in a, a neutral field. It would be no sense for the Mets to play here in New York in, in late October, early November. It's just too cold. There'll be no fans there anyway. Might as well play in a controlled environment. And another thing too, um, in in terms of like, just if let's say hypothetically the Mets were to win this World Series, um, they would both be the defending champions and still be the underdogs like they all, always are, which is really interesting too, because everybody would be like, oh, they, it was just it was just the Mets, and, and they they'd have to prove it again as the underdogs. Wouldn't it just be? I mean. The fates would would stack up for nobody but the Mets to win this year, for everything we've just said, you know, with the history of this franchise. Um, but you know what? I'll take it because I love what Mike said, or I, I think it was Mike, who said nobody questions the Dodgers. And, Jeff, you made a great point. I, I saw that written the other day, that the Dodgers technically should not have made the playoffs because if you put the first two halves, the two halves together, they did not have the best record in the West. It was, it was the Astros. And so they not have even made the playoffs. And they won the World Series. So nobody nobody even thinks about that. And, and you know what? In time, no one would think about this either. So, okay, so let's go to two more things on, on the proposal. Actually, one more than, than one other thing about starting with the short season. So the big thing right now that the players pushed back on was testing. And let's talk about that for a minute. Baseball is saying we'll test several times a week. The players, from what we understand, want daily testing. Personally, I think that's the only way you could raise the curtain on this thing, to have daily testing. Ron Darling said there has to be daily testing um, because for obvious reasons. You know, if somebody is asymptomatic carrying this thing around, if you test the person on a Tuesday and it doesn't show up, but, it, but the person doesn't test again until Friday, that person had three days to infect everyone. So baseball right now is saying several times a week. Players are saying it needs to be every day. A um, couple more things to think about. Think about other people, you know, like broadcasters, like umpires, people who 
you know, peripheral people who have to be considered here as well. They'd have to be tested every day also, and they also could get it, and it might be more detrimental for them than a young, healthy player. And there are immunocompromised players. I hadn't thought of that until I read that this week. And it just never dawned on me. But you know what? They're human like we are. There are players who are immunocompromised. Kenley Jansen has a cardiac condition. And COVID is especially difficult on people who have diabetes, cardiac conditions, respiratory conditions. So you have to factor that in, too. So to me, it's like the stakes are so high, you have to nail this. If, if somebody has it, you've got to nip that right there and not let that person in the door. And then the other thing is about the quarantining. Um, baseball is saying if somebody tests positive, the whole team doesn't have to have anything happen. Just that one person has to be quarantined for 14 days. So we'll go around again. Jeff, I'll ask you your opinion on that. Uh, there does seem to be a divide here you know, with owners saying several times a week, players saying daily, and then when you factor in the other things I just said. So, Jeff, what's your thought process on that? I agree with uh, Ron Darling. Testing would probably need to be done every day. My only concern would be that is, is the optics. Like, why are players and, and anybody involved with game baseball getting tested every day where, you know, common citizens, you know, me, you, you guys, you know, do we get tested every day? No, uh, you know, it, that's going to be very – that's the opposite thing going to be very bad. Uh, but I think it, it, for the game to, to get started, it probably would be needed daily. I, I assume they're going to have to hire their own company to administer these, these tests because it shouldn't take away from the public, public uh, getting tested. And they, uh, they really you – know, you're right, they need to – take care of everybody else who are immunocompromised. Uh, that picture for the uh, Cleveland Indian, I think Carrasco, wasn't he hospitalized last year, had some cancer, cancer scare? Yep. And he, he yes. was uh, compromised as well. So, yeah, it, 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 but they'll work this out. I know I, this is not one of the problems I see with the owners and players. They'll, they'll work something out that's amenable to both of them, but daily testing would be the way to go. Fair enough. Um, all right, so Mike, let's go to you next on this one. What do you think Ooh. about the differences in thought? Um, differences uh, in thought on um, where we are with testing. Had you considered immunocompromised players? What about all the peripheral people? You know, we had uh, a couple weeks ago. We talked about all the people it takes to do a TV production. What about all that, Mike? You, you know what? Not for a second, and um, I'm being honest. Not for a second did I ever consider, you know players with compromised conditions. Uh, wow, uh, that, that, uh, that's a good one to throw into the conversation. I'm in lockstep with Jeff insofar as the optic. You know, uh, why are we bending over backwards to get these guys on the field and, you know, potentially tested on a daily basis, this, that, and the other, when the general public uh, is still at risk and, and in some situations, you know, haven't and can't get tested? Uh, so, you know, that, that's a civic concern, of course. Me personally, I think uh, if you're going to go forward with this plan, the players should indeed be tested daily. Uh, if not on a 12-hour cycle, every 12 hours. Uh, I think they should be able to be tested at night and by morning have that result come in. I don't know how feasible that is. I don't know how the testing mechanism works and how soon you get those results back. Uh, but to that effect, I would say, and, and and pick up the phone and call South Korea 
and find out, you know, what they're doing and how they're doing it and what are they using to do it with. Uh, they, they had extensive technology in place uh, to utilize and, and monitor and survey and, and test. So find out what they're doing and try to incorporate some of that here, not just in baseball, but, you know, uh, throughout. Uh, but, hey, baseball can be a good testing ground for what is to come. Sam, same questions. Um, yeah, there needs to be daily testing. Uh, and let me just say that I've actually experienced being tested. Uh, last Tuesday I got tested, and uh, as of last Tuesday I do not have COVID. Um, and I set myself up through the, the state, New York State, uh, co-payments were waived. There was no, not even a mention of insurance or, or request for insurance. It was a drive-through. It was in the, the Sears parking lot on Bedford Avenue out in Flatbush. And um, the city is also running tests. The, the only problem, I, I would say, is the fact that in lower-income neighborhoods, um, you, you're, you're going to have longer lines. So that's a big problem for the public, but anybody can get tested and, and it's free of charge. Uh, and if you do think, obviously the government is encouraging people who are more potentially prone to receive it, uh, get tested more often, um, you know, just the essential workers. And since I've been doing Postmates all around Manhattan, I thought, even though I, like the only reason why I, I got tested was because of that, as opposed to any symptoms whatsoever, I have felt completely fine, and uh, I still feel fine right now. So, um, and and that's, but, but you know, like I say, as of last Tuesday, that's why there needs to be daily testing. You, you know, I, I considering how easy it was, uh, I even wonder whether I should be getting tested weekly. Um, but no matter how uncomfortable the swab, the cotton uh, swab was up my nose, or whatever the uh, the um, Geez, what's the, 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 not the, obviously the, uh, is it a swab? Is that what I'm, Rich? Uh, yeah, like a testing strip or whatever, yeah, like a swab. Well, okay, well, it got stuck up my nose, and it was certainly not the most comfortable thing, and I probably should have blown my nose more before I went over there after waking up. But, um, I, it, it yes, you, you have to wonder why, you know, yes, is this the most important thing? to be risking everybody when a regular person uh, will have to wait on even longer lines than the baseball people, will, of course, will. But at the same time, I, I think the argument for what it, it does for people uh, is, is a pretty good pro to look when you're trying to weigh the pros and cons. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think – and, I, and it, it's not – I don't know that this is a, a point of contention – the owners lobbed over, you know, several times a week. Players came back with daily. If they disagree on that, I mean, I think the owners would look like idiots because I, I think the safety of the players, any human being, is, is tantamount here. And so if that's the way you do it, because let's face it, these guys are going to go home. They, you know, we're, they're not doing the isolation thing like we talked about a month ago. They are going to go home to their families when they are home, and, and they're going to isolate in the hotels from what I understand. Um, when they're on the road, but um, 
but they are going to go home. So, you know, they are exposed to other people, and you have to test daily because you just never know. And can, I, can I just say, does this mean that they need, they should probably be wearing a mask when they go home? Uh, um, it, it is a lot to think about. But, you know, like sanitizing every time, immediate, like apparently they're not, you know, we're talking about not having showers at the, the you know, not showering at the clubhouse and going home to shower. Uh, so they'll, pre- it, it, you know, if that's the case, then they'll probably definitely be going into their showers before they see their kids, before they see their, their loved ones. Um, it, it is, it's, all, all of this needs to be thought about. I mean, when this was, when this was at its height, I was taking two showers a day. I really was. Uh, and, it, you know, at some point we found out it might have been a little bit of overkill, uh, but at the same time, I mean, the numbers were staggering. Like, thinking about where they are today, they, 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 they shouldn't be anywhere. But, like, I heard from Andrew Cuomo the other day that it was 109 deaths, you know. And, and what I remember at this worst, it was like 400. It was over 500 deaths a day that was happening from this stuff. And, and I'm, I'm glad that we've been, you know, getting – it under control. Obviously, I think it's because of the precautions we've been taking. Um, but you know, all of this does need to be thought about, and, and whatever you need to, you know, like spraying the clubhouses down after everybody leaves, spraying them before they wait, whatever you need to figure out how to do, because you think you need to be making money on baseball. But more importantly, we want to be the reason why you're making money off of baseball in any way, shape, or form, because we love the sport. It, it's just, it's a weird dichotomy of emotions that come together with baseball that have been around since the game was introduced in America. And it's, it's remarkable and wonderful and gross and disgusting to talk about. It's all of those things combined when, when going through everything we're, we're talking about to try to get baseball back. If I may, Rich. Well, yeah, sure, go ahead. Home is no longer the safe haven it used to be. These players are going to have to take protocol home with them, as I do. I'm out there every day, so what do I do when I come home? I I enter my house through my garage. First thing I do is I get the hose, and I I spray down my boots, and that's where they stay. And I stay segregated from my wife and my son until I remove that clothing, keep my clothing and that laundry separated from theirs, but I don't engage with them until I'm in and out of the shower and changed. Then I can say hello. So you know what, what's good for me may not be good for the next person. But what I'm saying is that they need to take certain precautions when they go home, because it's like I say, it's no longer the safe haven it used to be. So yeah, they're going. If these people are going to work, well, in order to get from point A to point B, you know, there's space in between that you're always at risk to as well. So by all means, they're going to have to take certain measures at home. And with their families. Definitely. And, you know, and it's, yeah. And the, my understanding is, look, this was thrown out as, you know, things like uh, not showering at the ballpark, staying six feet apart, you know, uh, not allowed to go to your mouth under any circumstances if you're the pitcher, a ball that's touched by multiple people gets thrown out of play, things like that. And, I, you know, from what I'm hearing, a lot of the players are saying, look, nice try. We understand, but some of that is just, you know, no on-field celebrations. We can't, you know, it's just not realistic. At some point, I think what the owners did was they tried to say, which is odd, the one thing about the the testing is 
on the, shall we say, not-so-conservative side, but then everything else is on the conservative side, and, you know, spitting and things like that. Well, these are all good ideas, and no one says they're not. They're just not practical. So what the players came back with, from what I understand, is a modification of some of the things that are particularly impractical, um, like those things like showering and spitting and, you know, if a ball is touched by more than one person, throwing out, you know, and that, no, uh, no arguing with the umpire, that was in there too. You know, things like that. It might have just been an <laughs> initial stab at it. That was just. Can you imagine Billy Martin that, with it's, that, right? <laughs> no, but like, I could see Billy Martin. It would be like major league style, you know, like, like PG version. He crumples it up. He crumples up the paper he receives with, with that instruction. Uh, or it, it goes the way the R rated major league went. Right, right. So, okay, so let, let's go to the next thing on baseball restarting. Let's bring it home here to New York a little bit. And, and think about a quote from, uh, from Governor Cuomo from just a couple of days ago, May 18th, which actually is like uh, six days ago. So, and I'll read you the quote, and then I'll ask you your thoughts on it. And uh, we'll start with Jeff on this one. So Cuomo says, I also have an encouraging major sports teams to plan reopenings without fans, but the games could be televised. New York State will help those major help those major sports franchises to do just that. Hockey, basketball, baseball, football, whoever can reopen, we're ready, willing, and able to partner. If they can make the numbers work, I say great, come back. Why wait until you can fill a stadium before you start bringing a team back? If you can televise in the meantime, that's great. That's a quote from Governor Cuomo. And, Jeff, I'm going to ask you, and, of course, I'll ask Mike and, and Sam the same questions in that order, when the governor says, we will partner with you, um, what does that mean? Does that mean that he really wants the games played in New York so badly that, and I'll throw this out, just give me your thought. Is he saying that in some way the state of New York will help these two franchises financially? And if that might sound great, but at the same time, every state is hurting for money right now. Everything is upside down. If he's referring to financial assistance, I don't know what he's talking about with partner, but if he were referring to financial assistance, what do you think the ramifications of that would be, Jeff? Um, well, I, I hope he uh, is sincere that day. he wants baseball, all, all major sports to come back in New York State, which is, which is great. Uh, big partner, I think, I don't know what to think about that. Uh, I guess he's more concerned that now if players are getting paid, maybe they get their, their share of the taxes. Maybe he's thinking that along that line, helping New York State out as, as opposed to the other way around. Uh, I just don't see it at this point because even though the governor said he's willing to have uh, all the sports start up in New York, the mayor still uh, is prohibiting gatherings. I mean, he still has not opened the beaches. Uh, in, in New York City and encouraging people to go elsewhere, thank you very much, you know, come to Long Island or, or Jersey. So I'm, 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 it's, I'm saying to myself, well, how could the governor say, yeah, go ahead, but the mayor say, no, 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 not yet. So they they got to get on the same page before anything can happen. Uh, I, 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 personally, I, I think they should stay in neutral site. Uh in Florida or, or Arizona, where they can be closer together, and and not don't have to do so much traveling. But if they're going to play in their home stadium, if you, New York can help them as much as they can, that'd be great. I just don't see it happening right now. It, it's just uh, I hate to sound pessimistic, but the governor and mayor's got to oh, get the same oh. page before it happens. 
Now, how many how many times do you think the Mets will play the Yankees? It's going to be a surreal world, whatever, however it goes down. And I I, I mean I, I politely disagree, Jeff. I I think there's too much at stake. It just seems like there's too much at stake. And I I like the way that Barstool Sports article laid it out, Rich, uh, about the ramifications of it going into next year's bargaining as well as, as, uh, yeah, no, that, that's basically it. <laughs> Just that, that it would kind of prevent baseball from happening until 2022. And at that point, like, how can, how could any, any business survive that? They can't. That's the problem. Did you hear that the Oakland A's are, are not making rent payments because they can't at, on their stadium? Um, so, you know, teams are furloughing. There are a couple of teams that's, that jumped out and said, like, I think it was the Cardinals, a couple other brewers said we're not going to furlough people, and, and that was thought of as, like, wow, very progressive. Um, but teams are furloughing players. You have the example of the A's not being able to make a rent payment. Um, yeah, how can the business survive shut down that long? The, the players don't – nobody wants it. And, and the biggest problem is, you know, we had Anna Bryce on last week, and she made a great point that you have to look at something like this as an investment. Even if you lose some money in the process this year, you have to stay relevant. And and if you shut this game down and make it go away, especially when the NHL and the NBA come back, and assuming the NFL does as well, you're the only sport that shut it down, people are going to be like, you know what? Sorry, baseball, you know, I have other loves now. You know, you can you can you can go take a hike. So so that's something that I think they have to be thinking about. So, all right, so, uh, Mike, what are your thoughts on um, on Governor Cuomo and what he had to say? Governor Cuomo, by making that statement, I have no idea what he means by that. I can only speculate and guess that by partnering, he's talking about creating some kind of uh, policy conducive to playing the games and perhaps providing, you know, a police presence for crowd control and distancing and things of that nature. Uh, as far as, you know, any kind of financial assistance, no, I don't see that happening. Uh, but any way he can get his name involved and make it, you know, in such that he comes out in good light, you know, I think he's all for it. Uh partnership. I have no idea what he means by that. I can only say that he'll be you know, an, an agreeable participant in, in in the business of bringing sports back. And by that, just providing assistance, uh, state assistance. And like I said, outside of cop presence and uh, providing policy, I have no idea what the hell he's talking about. Yeah, I, I, it can't be money because any state right now that would give a sports team money with all that's going on. You know, the unemployment claims are through the roof and, you know, states and Medicaid services and all that are being strapped for cash. Can you imagine any yeah. government giving money to a sports team? Ooh, I, that, I think you might be right. I think what he means might be, you know, provide police presence, you know, um, making, and if they do, there's speculation that maybe late season allowing a, you know, a controlled number of fans, maybe police presence to ensure social distancing. I'm hoping that's what he means. Um, Outside okay. of that, I so, can't see much else. I, I think you're right. All right. So, well, we've talked about COVID-19 and how it's affecting us in our home areas. We've talked about 
the the uh, proposal being bandied about between the players and the owners. We gave our opinions on that. So let's move to kind of a lighter topic. Our uh, Noah Syndergaard, he had Tommy John surgery in March, and um, so Noah finds himself in the news now. We're just, where the hell does this stuff come from? So let me just read it to you, and then I'll get your comments, and I believe we will start with Sam on this one. We'll go Sam to Mike to Jeff. So early Saturday, news surfaced that Mets pitcher Noah Syndergaard was being sued for $250,000 by his landlord for unpaid rent on a Tribeca apartment. So Noah's quote is, let me get this straight, I fairly and in good faith offered to pay two months' rent over 50k to a landlord for a place I was never going to step foot in because of a global pandemic, on and on and on. I have my TJ, and he says, yeah, okay, I'll see you in court, pal. So uh, according to the lawsuit, Syndergaard rented a three-bedroom apartment on an eight-month lease for 27000 a month back in February, but hasn't paid his rent. Um, since his March 20th intended move-in date, court documents claim that Syndergaard repudiated and abandoned his obligations under the lease, refusing to take possession of the lease premises and declined to make any of the payments. Noah, what's going on, man? I mean, I don't even know what happened. I don't know what the, I haven't read the agreement. It's none of my business. But here's another example of, of the Mets being in the news for just this weird crap. Like, why does this have to happen? So, I don't know. So, uh, so Sam, what are your thoughts on this? Do you just laugh it off, or are you just like, what, what how yeah, does I'm it land laughing, on I'm you? Laughing at, I'm laughing it off. Uh, I, I think uh, it's great. <laughs> it's, it's fantastic. <laughs> Noah, Noah's probably absolutely right. The guy got had to get Tommy John surgery, and COVID-19 happened. Please. Are you kidding me? It, and, and so I think I think that as much as listen, I, I understand that they're probably hurting too. There's probably a lot of uh, being affected uh, in terms of you know people who had to move this, that, and the other who were probably moving down to Tribeca from maybe who knows who who knows. I mean, there's so many different ways that the the, the uh, you know re- real estate in New York is constantly shifting. Um, so I, I think at this point, as much money as Noah Syndergaard has, I, I think that, uh, yeah, yeah, I have to side with him. And I like the way he framed it when, when he was like, yeah, I'll see you in court, pal, for me, you know, especially considering that it's, it does sound like the landlord's the one who leaked this, thinking that, that it, it would you know, garner like some, you know, just like, uh, oh, you know, especially because, you know, Syndergaard hasn't been the best pitcher lately as well. So maybe he thought, maybe he thought maybe that some of that might be in play. Uh, but from my perspective, um, I, I have to, to say that uh, whoever is the landlord of a Tribeca apartment, um, I, I, I'd like to, I would like to know more details because if it's a high rise, then I can absolutely 100% say, uh, yeah, okay, you know, you you you're shaking me down for 250 grand. Um, you know, maybe if it's like a, a brownstone, I change. You know, who who knows exactly what the the economy of of what he was about to rent is? Who knows? But at the same time, most likely it's some big Manhattan landlord that these players rent from, and yeah, you know, please, come on. <laughs> Mike, what are your thoughts? 
It is pretty funny. Uh, you know what? I'm sure they've been in contact and in communication with each other over the, over the course of months. Uh, otherwise, you know, Rich, I, I really don't care. This is business. Uh, looks like some agent or somebody is just trying to get their, you know, two minutes of fame at uh, Syndergaard's expense. He can afford it. That's why something like this will be thrown out. And, Jeff, how about Noah? You know, he has Tommy John, but he can't go quietly. What, what are your thoughts? Yeah, this is a... Uh... Yeah, this is pretty pretty funny. Just the uh, Mets being the Mets, of course. Something stupid ended up in the paper. I say let the lawyers uh, figure it out. It's just what, what Noah's statement reminded me of was when he pitched in the World Series in 2015, that first batter to uh, Eclides Escobar, where he threw a hard, hard one over his head. That's why I'm thinking that statement was that he uh, put out there on Twitter. So, uh, you know. Listen, it's, listen can, I, can I also be on the record and, and say that some people have been trying to say that, you know, Noah Syndergaard was becoming another Matt Harvey. Let me just be on the record and say Noah Syndergaard is a great New York star. He has not come together completely as being, you know, the pitcher that we want to have. But, but Matt Harvey's career came crashing down, and it wasn't just because of the injuries. It was also because of the way he thought he was a New York star, and he didn't handle it correctly. Noah Syndergaard is showing everybody how you are a New York star, and the guy's from Texas. He's, he's, uh, he's great, and I, I hope he can come together as a pitcher, and he showed a lot of promise at the end of last season. Um, but just I, I, I vehemently uh, – uh, scratch out <laughs> any anybody's uh, uh, notion that he's becoming this the second coming of Matt Harvey. Bravo, Sam. Bravo. Well, no, yeah. Matt, Matt Harvey was a, a comet. You know, he went to court this guy. It was great for a very short time being. But you're right. Noah is a, a more complete pitcher. I, I think he, uh, he really uh, – Built for New York, and I hope the Mets, the Mets. He stays with the Mets for a long time, and he comes together as a you know uh, Robin to. Uh, oh, that's a bad bad analogy, but uh, the number two to uh, Jacob Degrom. I think they make a great team, like uh, like Koufax and Drysdale, Steven and Kuzman, Degrom and Syndergaard. Here, here. So you have been listening to episode number fifty-five of the Metsian podcast with Sam Rich and Mike. And we've talked a lot about COVID-19. We've talked about the potential restart of the baseball season and what needs to happen for that to take place. And, gentlemen, it's ironic that we're talking right now because I don't know if you have SNY on, but there are two outs in the top of the ninth, game seven. The Mets are about to win the World Series in in this rebroadcast. And um, I've been watching this. I've been watching basically every game. i watched the Astros series. And the reason I've done that is – Obviously, having experienced all this, there are things you forget. And with two outs, I was at this game. I was at game seven. I forgot that somebody threw a smoke bomb on the field with two outs, and the game was delayed. It's been delayed about five minutes already. Um, And I totally forgot about that. But right near Mookie Wilson in left field, a big smoke bomb went off, and all this, you know, orange smoke went in the air, and they they had to come take it off the field. What idiot does that? And broke could have broken the Orozco's momentum here. I totally forgot about that. And another thing I forgot about was in Game Six, at, in the tenth inning, Howard Johnson was playing shortstop. Now I know he had done that, you know, throughout the '86 season, but I forgot that they had pinch hit for both Santana and Elster. And at the top of the tenth, Johnson was playing shortstop, and, and that just had totally gotten by me. 
So anyways, it's ironic we're doing a Mets podcast, and, and during this podcast, the Mets are about to win the 86 World Series on SNY. Have you guys watched any of this? And if so, what are your thoughts on it? Anybody? Sure. Well, you know my story. Every time I watch these games, Rich, it's like the first time. As you say, right. I learn something new every time. And the reason is because I was overseas in 86. You know, such a, a Mets fan like myself, I was a single-digit midget in the, in the 70s. I lived through the dark era, you know, and, and here I am. I, I joined the military. I joined the Army. I leave in 85, and these guys win the World Series in 86. I, I missed the whole thing. I was overseas. I was in Germany. So even today, I'm still learning things in each and every game, if not inning to inning. Uh, I still have a hard time predicting, you know, oh, this happens now. This is what happens next. I still have trouble with that. Uh, I don't think I've I'm, – I'm yet to sit down and watch this series, you know, like uh, binge-watching. I'm yet to do that. Uh, most of the times it's a game here, a game there, a segment here, and a segment there. This week has probably been the most intensive that I've – intense that I've watched this series in a long, long, long time. And as you say, Rich, I'm still learning things. Uh, it's still an unnatural thing for me. I don't know how else to explain that, but as a diehard Mets fan with, with, you know, complete memory since, say, I don't know, 74, it's rough. It's weird and it's rough. (laughs) I hear you, brother. Uh, Anybody else, Jeff or Sam, have you watched any of this? I've been watching just, bits and pieces. I've seen them before, but this week I've only seen bits and pieces. But I will say, I did see it was game six earlier on today, and it was the 10th inning where Aguilera was pitching. The the Red Sox was already up 5-3, and he hit Bill Buckner in the hip, I think. And it looked like Bill took one or two steps toward the pitcher, toward Aguilera. I, I completely forgot that until I saw it again today, and I you know, I saw the umpire come out and escort Bill Buckner down a couple steps toward first base. And I'm wondering, now I'm thinking about it, maybe did that have anything that's been in the bottom of the six, uh, bottom of the uh, in, in game six? We'll never know, but, uh, it, you know, put a little thing in my head. Well, you know, let I'll me talk say, about I that. I haven't been able to – no, no, no. Uh, go ahead, Rich. No, go ahead, Sam. Go ahead. No, I just wanted to say that that I haven't been able to watch them as they come on SNY, but luckily, uh, if I ever wanted to binge watch, as Mike says, uh, all six, uh, seven games excuse me, are on YouTube. So there you go. And that go. they definitely are. And so, Jeff, I was talking about this as we were preparing for the show. Um, last night, Facebook had a lot of the players on as the game, as game six was on. And it was, they had that, I call it the Brady Bunch view on Zoom, where you know everybody has a little square and they're all in there. And so Hernandez was there, uh, Mitchell, Strawberry, Gooden, Ojeda, um, uh, who else? There, there, was a bunch, there were a bunch of them on there. And so what happened to the thing you just said, two outs, uh, the, the Red Sox score two, it's 5-3 Boston, and Buckner's up, and he gets hit in the hip. Now, you make a good point. Did he have a little pain there? That Could that have affected how much he bent down for the ball in the bottom of the 10th? Don't know. Was Aguilera throwing at him? I always wondered that because 
the, Aguilera has given up two runs now. Um, he was obviously frustrated, obviously thinking he was going to wear this the rest of his life. Was he getting a bit of revenge by throwing at him? They asked that question. Gelbs asked that question last night. He said, is he throwing at him? Universally, all, I think there were like nine, ten guys, all of them said, no way, no way, not throwing at him, not throwing at him. And when the, the people who have played the game professionally, and especially that game in, in particular professionally, um, when they say that, now I'm comfortable that he wasn't throwing at him. Uh, but I always wondered about that because, you know, but they said, no, the, the reason you don't throw at him is because you're putting another runner on base. You have to put the team ahead of yourself. doesn't matter how angry you are. You have to do anything you can to keep it right there to give yourself a chance to win. So they, like, almost laughed it off that there's no way he was throwing at him. But that's, I'm glad you brought that up because it's something I had always wondered about, too. Yep. So any other thoughts on this? I mean, it's, 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 it's interesting watching this back. You know, um, I, was, I was at all three home games of, of, the, of the NLCS and then at games two and seven of the World Series. And so it's nice to sit down and watch it and just see some of these subtleties. Um, but anyway, now they're giving David uh, Johnson say, uh, the, uh, the trophy. I, I will say, and I said this to, to Mike before we got on air, um, that that 10th inning of game six uh, is just like, to me, uh, back to the future. No matter how many times you've seen it, you're still on the edge of your seat wondering whether Marty's going to make it to the lightning in time. That 10th inning <laughs> is the most remarkable thing I've ever, I've ever seen. And obviously, you know, obviously it's one year between the two. Back to the Future came out in 85. Uh, that happened in 86. But that's just like every time you watch it, you're like, how are these guys, when, when Keith Hernandez flies out and Gary Carter's coming up, you're just like, how, how in the hell did they pull this off? <laughs> Tim Tuffle right. did a lot of try to blow the series, didn't he? <laughs> He did, and, and yeah, he did. And what about Elster? I mean, Elster had an error in the top of the ninth, um, even though the game, you know, the game was tied. Uh, they got a double play to erase that mistake and you know, that give themselves a chance to win the bottom. But um, you forget about that, and I forgot about that little subtlety where Elster made an error on a routine ground ball. That could have cost them the series. Hojo's at bat in the bottom of the ninth, first and second, no outs. And he's, he's asked to bunt. They were – Questioning why Davy didn't leave uh, why Davy didn't leave Elster in to bunt, but they sent he sent Hojo up to bat for him, and he sent you would think if it's a swing away, need a power, need a you know home run, Hojo would be the guy. Elster was a better bunter, so he sent Hojo in to bunt, which seemingly made no sense, and and he got away with it, you know, and and Keith said it as well. Keith said, look, he got away with it. We we were all wondering what in the hell is he doing. He goes, I talked to my father after the game. The first thing my father said was, congratulations on the win, and why the hell did he send Hojo up to, to bunt for Elster? Elster's the better bunter. Um, you know, I saw, I saw the clip of, of the guys talking on Zoom uh, uh, while, while watching games. Uh, you know, I just saw the clip, like, on the SNY Twitter feed. And I'll tell you, like, sometimes, like, you wonder if, if some, somewhere out there there's a conspiracy theorist who is just like, uh, it must be hand sanitizer, Zoom, and sterile gloves that paid a bunch of money to CDC to make up a, a, a virus. <laughs> because they, there's, 
stock is flying through the roof. Just watching that thing and just being like, Jesus, Zoom. You know, they were around for corporations, but their brand is everywhere right now. <laughs> well, oh, hell yeah, it is. One last quick point, Rich, and, and, and to you, Jeff, as well. Uh, I know you want to move on. Uh, Lee Mazzilli, you know, I mentioned the dark era. Who ever foresaw then Lee Mazzilli playing in a World Series for the Mets? Not only playing in the World Series. What about the key hits? He, he had key hits in Game 6 and 7 of the World Series. Very key That's hits. And, yeah. and, and you've got to think, you got to think about, like, how it happened. The fact that he traded him for for a free agent, he, you know, he he uh, sorry, he traded for Lee Mazzilli back. Uh, Frank Cashin did basically like righting a wrong in some fashion, even though the original trade actually you know uh, bared a lot of fruit for the Mets. Um, but at, at the same time, you know, the fact that they were able to use George Foster and turn him into bringing. The, the prodigal son home in many ways. Uh, it, 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 it's really special. And what about this? The man on my screen right now. Yeah, I, I know it's Ray Knight. I know Ray Knight was a big part. I know he was the World Series MVP. But when you watch this back, the 86 postseason, and you see the key at-bats he had, the enthusiasm he brought, the leadership he brought – Let's not forget, Strawberry's taken out of game six, and, and Strawberry probably wanted to strangle Davey Johnson at that point. And after Strawberry hits a home run on the bottom of the eighth, he, game seven, he crosses the plate. Ray Knight stops him. Ray Knight's the next hitter, stops him, and he's telling him, and he's pointing to him like, and you know what he's saying. He's saying, you go in there and you high-five Davey like, every, like you're going to do everybody else. Don't pull any crap now. We're trying to win a World Series. And Strawberry's nodding and said, yep, okay, okay. But, you know, that's the kind of credibility Knight had with that team. And I was disappointed he wasn't on the Zoom last night because he would have had a lot to say. But all the guys uh, said, when we got Ray in 84 down the stretch, and, and he was here, he goes, his leadership was over the top. And you forget about it because he was gone after 86. And you know he's the MVP, but you didn't realize – the subtleties, the, the hits he had, the leadership he showed, you see that back when you watch it. It's amazing. And can I, can I just say about Ray Knight, like the stories that he's told in, you know, whatever fashion that he can, whether, you know, in WFAN and whatnot, about why he didn't come back and, and, and the way the contract negotiations went. And I think he ended up going to the Baltimore Orioles. But, um, you know, now he's, he, you know, he's never really been able to come back uh, uh, in proper way. And just in, in my research, shameless plug for the, the Dodgers thing I'm writing, uh, Bedford and Sullivan, everybody go listen to that podcast too. But the, the thing that I'm reading about it and, and, and you know, when when you're you're thinking about some of these executives, you watch shows like Mad Men, you read about some of the 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 players up in the offices that have have been there uh, over the years. Whether it's Larry McPhail uh, or whether it's Frank Cashin, who was dealing with Ray Knight, um, and then you think about Brian, uh, Brody Van Wagenen uh, with Edgar Edgar Alfonso just recently this this past year. And how there's just no sentiment in business. It's all just, you know, it's it's business, not personal. And they say they're ruthless. These are these are ruthless characters out there that that really just have not a care in the world and don't recognize what what you know why 
these egos come together to deny, you know, prob- probably the reason, you know, with uh, Ray Knight not there is probably a big reason why it didn't really gel for the remainder of, of what could have been a dynasty. Uh, it's it's Ray Knight's a very interesting character, and and he's also really cool. Uh, one of the Washington Nationals games that I was at, and he was like preparing, just sitting there, and Met fans were hollering at him. I yelled at him because he had his ring on. Uh, he you know he was he was doing Nationals, but he still had his his '86 ring there. And I said, "Nice ring, Ray," and he was like, "Thanks," <laughs> and he, he held it up to me with a big smile. Uh, you know, so he's still. He really appreciates uh, any, you know, Met fan that, that's coming his way, even if it, it must be weird for him, especially in games like in 2015. Those were the games that I was at in September with the Nationals when the Mets came back. You know, it, it must be still very weird because you can tell his enthusiasm for the Nationals is real, but, but the, the rivalry must still tear him apart somewhere deep down inside. And that, that story, I took my son to a National Met game a couple of years ago in Washington, and Ray, like you said, he was, worked for uh, the Nationals, and he was doing a pregame show, uh, and they had the booth outside. And I'm walking along with my uh, Met T-shirt on, and I actually happened to have a ball with me. And it was during commercial break, and I said, hey, Ray, could you sign it? I threw him the ball. He signs it, uh, World Series MVP, and, and throws it back, and I promise he display it in my uh, in my den. He was a very nice guy, and yeah, he loves being a uh, you know the World Series MVP. Oh, definitely. <laughs> and no, but like, and you can you can tell that that I think a lot of these fan a lot of these players know that the best time the best years of their lives was when they were on the New York Mets, and they can tell by the way that that the fans connect with them, and it's not because of those those guys that they complain about, you know, the, the, it, it, Ed Cranepole complains about the Wilpons, but he will talk to you about the Mets and, and, you know, it, it's, it's that, that's what it's about for these guys. And you can tell, and they, they, you know, for the, the ones that are, that are really special, like Ray Knight, they, they wear it on their sleeves. They do. There's so much going on, you know, and I, we could do this all night and I know I can, because I could talk about that 86 season forever. One last thing I wanted to say on that, then we'll move on to number 55. They were, when Carter was about to come up with two outs, nobody on the bottom of the 10th, I believe it was Elster, no, it might have been Hojo, one of them said, hey, you know, before this at that, I just want to say something. And it was something that had always been on my mind, too, uh, just like the Aguilera throwing at Buckner. It was when that ball, when Gary hit that ball that dropped in for a single, I thought it was going to be caught. And I and he goes and I couldn't believe and it might have been Hojo I think it was Hojo, who said I couldn't believe when I looked up that it was going to drop in front of Rice because Rice was playing him so deep Rice was playing him basically on the warning track and with a two run lead and nobody on why are you doing that why are you so deep play average position in left field because it doesn't you know you the hit is more likely than the double a double doesn't hurt you any more than a hit when when you're when you're ahead too so. It was and I, I also, I, 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 Jim Rice is interesting too because I, I, I remember him just from from that entire stretch of, of of television time. Jim Rice is celebrating is is celebrating early in the dugout. I think probably before he went to the field, of course, when they were still doing the rally. So it's interesting. That's what I think about when you mention Jim Rice. 
Yeah, he was, and Oil Can Boyd was, you know, and um, and the guys in the top of the tent, the guys last night were saying, look at them in that dugout. They go, look at them, how much fun they were having. And, and he goes, we can't blame them, you know, because they were seemingly going to win this thing. But he goes, and, and Keith said that the reason, you know, he goes, he's been chided for it, for being in Davey's office. He goes, with a, with a frosty, they were calling it, in his hand. He goes, it was because... I couldn't bear the thought of seeing them celebrate in our field. He goes, I just did not did not want to be in the dugout and see that happen. And then happen. he told he tell did he tell the story too about him? Nobody moved once because he was just oh, yeah. he stayed put. Hey, he did tell that, and Mitchell actually, and this is the last thing I'm going to say because I I'll never stop myself. Um, Mitchell said, and he said, look, I was not in the clubhouse with my jock strap off. He goes, and, you know, down and had to put, put pants on to go hit. He goes, that is not true. He goes, and, and McDowell was on there. And, and he goes, Roger, he goes, you were in the dugout. You were in the clubhouse because you were out of the game. He goes, was I in the clubhouse? And McDowell said, you were not. So Mitchell, they got a good laugh out of it, but he put to bed that story that's been legendary, that he was in the clubhouse with his underwear on, no jock strap, and had to go find a pair of pants. So that apparently is not and, true. And, and, and you're right. You're right, Rich. We're gonna we could end up talking about 1986 forever, but Kevin Mitchell is another one that they should have never let go, and broke up the chemistry. He said that. You know, he said that he was heartbroken when he was traded. He was absolutely heartbroken, and that. Um, and Strawberry, you know, you saw this wasn't just on last night, but Strawberry said a couple days ago that leaving the Mets was the worst thing he ever did. Um, and you know, thinking it was going to be better back home in LA, he he really kind of jabbed at the LA fans a little bit last night. You know, saying that there are no fans like New York and that kind of thing. So it's been fun, and guys, it's been a lot of can fun. Can I? Can I? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Can I also ask how was it about like Daryl Strawberry and Dwight Good? Was you know, I mean, obviously they were putting everything aside, but what's going on there? They seemed fine last night. They were they were um, of course you know they're obviously in different houses, but. Um, and yeah, we've all heard that they weren't the clo- as close of friends as they, you know, people thought they were. Um, but last night they were teasing each other. Uh, Strawberry was saying that um, he had a deep fly ball or something that was caught, and Gooden was saying if I was up, that would have been out. And you know, and then Daryl's like, oh yeah, Doc, you had a better swing than me. And they were they were going back and forth last night, so you would not have known. But but it's pretty clear that. Because they were two young guys, yes, two young African-American guys, come at the same time, very talented, everybody thought they were best buddies, but they both said that they just weren't. It just didn't work out. They just weren't. But they seemed fine last night. Um, uh, that's, that's good because, yeah, I know there was some radio drama. Yeah, no, they, they seemed totally fine last night. They all seemed they, – they seemed like they were very – friendly last night in the top of the tent they were eerily silent gelbs had to get stuff out of him like he was asking them questions because you could see they're watching this and, and you're kind of looking at their faces thinking they're thinking holy shit we really came that close to losing and and they were just like it was just eerie in the top of the tent how quiet they were so, so uh, because i wasn't able to watch like the, the thing that i saw on twitter was just basically the brady bunch zoom so, so how was it c- coming through on on SNY? Did they just have picture in picture? I guess. No, SNY. It was only on Facebook. Was the Zoom? So you were watching SNY TV, and then you had your computer on the on the Zoom, and you had it both going. It was they weren't they weren't. Oh, okay. And, and only hopefully being... everything was simultaneous. 
hopefully everybody was able to have be simultaneous with the guys. Like like the timing it wasn't was. Off. Yeah, it, the okay. timing was right on. And um, apparently, and I was one of those people. I tried to do to the Zoom from my phone, and it wouldn't work. And they and SNY actually tweeted that it wasn't working. If that they actually use a computer for the Zoom, they said for some reason it wasn't working on mobile devices. So. Um, Anyway, gentlemen, we are at the hour and a half mark. You've been listening to the Messian podcast with Sam Rich and Mike. It's been an absolute pleasure talking about the potential restart of the season, which makes me really happy. Talking about 86, which makes me happier. And and now we're going to talk about number 55. You know, this is our 55th edition of the podcast. We typically talk about the number of the Mets who have worn uh, that the number corresponding. So, um Number 55, I'll, uh, I'll go down the list here, and then we'll just ask, you know, for any thoughts on these guys. Jeff, we'll start with you, and then we'll go over to, uh, to Sam and then to, then to Mike. So the people who have worn 55, somebody by the name of Sheriff Robinson. I have no idea who that was. It was in my era, so 72 I do remember a little bit um, of. But I do not remember anybody by the name of Sheriff. And he, wore, and he wore it the entire season, Rich. Yeah, four fifteen to ten four. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Joe Frazier, not smoking Joe Frazier, the the manager. Um, Joe Frazier wore it. Frank Howard, another manager. Um, Oral Hershiser had a decent nineteen ninety nine for the Mets after being the end the villain in eighty eight. Um, good, decent ninety nine for the Mets. Bobby Floyd, I don't remember. Sean Estes, next time, please hit Clemens, not throw behind him. Okay, we'll talk about that. Um, Pedro Feliciano, everyday Pedro. They burnt his arm out, didn't they? Um, Tom Nieto, the backup catcher. Ken Oberkfell, we think of him as a Cardinal, part of those Cardinal teams that were the nemesis of the Mets. But let's not forget, he was a Met. Um, so Kenny Oberkfell. Randy Neiman, um, Randy Neiman, the reliever, who um, about whom Frank Cashin said that people who do the least squirt the most champagne. Chris Young, <laughs> starting pitcher. Um, Chris Young started against the Mets in Game Four of the 2015 World Series. Let's not forget that. He did. Um, he did. He did. Uh, Pedro Feliciano came back and wore it again in 13. Kelly Johnson, I loved Kelly Johnson. Outstanding Swiss Army knife kind of player. Um, Ty Kelly, I have no use for. Uh, Kelly Johnson came back and wore it again in 16. Neil Ramirez, only three years ago, and I'm blanking on who he – I don't remember him at all. Um, and Corey Oswalt is the current owner of number 55, should we have baseball this year. He is technically still wearing the jersey. So, Jeff, anything you want to say about any of these people to don number 55 in the orange and blue? Well, I, I will say I'm glad I'm not the only one who doesn't remember, remember Neil Ramirez. I had to look him up and go, well, this guy pitched for the Mets, and apparently he did pitch in 21 games in the three months he was here. Uh, yeah, three months he was there. I had no recollection of him, and it, and it was only three years ago. Love Kelly Johnson. Helped us in, in 15, Yeah, it's 2017. It makes sense. Yeah. I do remember Ken Overfell for the very few months he was here in New York. Uh, but when I think of 55 on the Mets, I think of, for some reason, Oral Hershiser, because that 1999 season was pretty good for him. And uh, Sean Estes, and you're right, he should have hit Clemens that time, uh, but he did get a little revenge hitting the home run off him. But I will say, uh, so I want to bring this up uh, with 
you're talking about 86 series. If you remember in game six, it was Clemens started. He had a uh, he had a uh, like five o'clock shadow, and at the end of the game, toward the end of the game, they're showing in the dugout. He was clean shaven. He was getting ready for a press conference, and he was clean shaven when he beginning of the game. He was not. Again, but, some pre-celebration, just like just yeah, exactly. like what we were talking about with those dugout celebrators. Exactly. Uh, but, yeah, 55 for me, uh, I guess I would have to say Oral Hershiser uh, was the one that really, uh, uh, who I think of, uh, of the Mets at 55. So let me add one thing. Last night when they showed Clemens in the bullpen, clean shaven, Keith said that he saw that during the game. He wasn't in the clubhouse. And he said, and he used the word, he goes, I was so pissed off when I saw that 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 guy thought the game is over, I went in there and shaved, and I'm ready to go and, and be on TV, exactly what you just said. So anyway, Keith noticed that, and that was interesting to hear. So good stuff on 55. And, you know, Obergefell wore 55 as a coach with the Mets in, in 08. Remember, he played for the Mets in the 90s for one year. Um, but, but he still, you know, he did play for the Mets, but as 55, he was a coach. Um, so, uh, Sam, let's go to you. Thoughts on 55. I'm I'm going to give Ty Keller a little bit more credit. He's great on social media. Uh, he got a, a, a key hit against the Pirates when he tied the game, and that was a really crucial game in the middle of 2015. I think there was a lot of players down at that time, and we were trying to hang on. And it was one of the reasons why we were able to get to uh, August 1st, July 31st and August 1st, and be able to, to do what we we did against the Nationals that weekend, um, and not, you know, and and I, I, Kelly is the type of guy that I think is is you know he he's not going to to uh, obviously be anywhere near the Hall of Fame, but he's kind of just like Skip Lockwood, the the, the type that could really write an interesting book one day. Uh, obviously, I think Skip Lockwood had much more major league success than Ty Kelly has had, and for most likely will ever have. Uh, but I, I wanted to, to throw it a, a little bone to little guy when it comes to Ty Kelly. And, and in that same vein, Kelly Johnson kind of falls into that category, obviously on a much bigger level. He was able to kind of be what Ty Kelly could have been uh, and, and just never seemed to come to fruition from, from a, um, a, a longevity standpoint. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what he's doing now, but he's great with his Twitter feed. Um, but yeah, you know, Kelly Johnson will always be remembered and especially considering it's so funny that before he's remembered for, for two great playoff stretches, uh, you know, he's basically a brave and I think he like, you know, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but like he grew up a Braves fan. So there's all that, but he was, he was a, you know, he was ready to go and he performed every single time. Uh, both in 2015 and 2016. So in many ways, he may, from a player perspective, when looking at this, take that number 55, regardless of the fact that Oral Hershiser was part of 99. Because Oral Hershiser will always have 88 to shake off when it comes to his Mets legacy. Um, Kelly Johnson doesn't have that same kind of connection when it comes to the rivalry the way that, that Dodgers, 19, you know, the 1988 Oral Hershiser, what, what that means for the Met fan. Um, 
so and and you know when I see Chris Young's name on here, I think like, my God, he helps beat the Mets. Ugh. Um, can somebody help explain why on uh, uh, the Ultimate Mets Frank Howard is listed from 1982 till 1996? I'm guessing that he came back sometime in the 90s. Gee, I, I, if he did, I don't remember that. Um, I remember him as a coach, and then he took over for Bamberger in '83, and then Davey right, came Jeff, in. I don't know. remember Frank Howard coming back. Yeah, I think that might be just a typo because, like Rich said, that's how I remember Frank Howard. Let's see. Click on his name. I was a big fan of his, by the way. I liked having Hondo. I liked having. No, it it says it it says he was a coach ninety four to ninety six. Don't remember that at all. Nope, not at all. I can see it though. Under, with Dallas, with Dallas Green. Yeah, would have been under Dallas Green. Wow. Um, well, we'll have to see on that. So, hey, I want to make a self-correction here. Obergefell never played for the Mets. It's Tommy Herr who played for the Mets in the '90s. For some reason, I had those temporarily confused. So, Obergefell was only a coach for the Mets. I had him confused with Tom Herr, who, of course, killed the Mets as a Cardinal and had one season as a Met in the '90s. So my apologies there, Mike. Number fifty-five. What what say you? Pedro Feliciano, a man who pitched quite literally until his arm fell off. Three straight seasons led the majors in appearances. Right? He led the majors, or yeah, yeah he led the majors. Three straight seasons, and uh, just pitched one more season after that in twenty thirteen, and that was the end of his career. Boy, was he uh, overused? Is that and, and uh, can we say? Likely? I can't. I can't for the like of me. I can't for the like of me, Mike. Think of what number he normally wore because he only wore 55. He only wore 55 from from 9-4-2002 till 10-3-2004, and then once again in 2013 for uh, only a few weeks. So I'll throw it back to you, Mike, for the rest of your num- number 55. But. Uh, I can't remember for the life of me what number he he wore during the majority of his career with the Mets. Yeah, I forgot too. But uh, all harsh eyes, as you say, Sam, uh, he will forever be synonymous with the Dodgers in that 88 season against the Mets in the playoffs. Uh, But Joe Frazier, here's a question for Jeff and Rich. Joe Frazier, okay, he gets promoted from AAA Tidewater. And in 1976, as manager, leads the Mets to record-wise, their second-best ever season after 1969. Their 86 wins that season in, in 76 are the second-most in history to date. Why was he fired so quickly in 1977? That's my question to you guys. That's a good question. Uh, he, was, he was fired after 45 games, losing uh, two out of every three games. That might have been... Uh, the reason, I mean, he only had a 333 winning percentage in 77, uh, but the team wasn't very good, obviously. Uh, no, who uh, who followed him at? Was it, wasn't Tory, was it? Yeah, it might have been Tor- yeah, Tory. Yeah, he Tory. No, Tory, because there's, there's, that famous, there's that famous clip in the, uh, the Mets yearbook 
1977 where he goes, I, I, I like to look at it more as the Steve Henderson trade. <laughs> yeah, he was replaced with Tory. Tory was on the roster. He uh, he continued for a short bit of oh, player manager. Like, he took and can I just pitch. say that like he's 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 on a ranch when he's talking about that? By the way, like like they're filming him with horses in the background, and he's like in some like winter coat. But uh, anyway, I've never gotten a clear explanation as to why he was let go so early. Like I said, coming off the coming off the heels of. A season technically the second best after sixty nine. Yeah. Good question. Well, well, I'll I'll just say M. Donald Grant is probably the answer. Uh, yeah, he's around. He's still he's still uh, in effective control of this club, so uh, very well. Well, wasn't he a big? Wasn't he? I mean, he was a big reason why. the whole Dick Young, uh, Tom Seaver thing. I mean, M. Donald Trump well, was considered a big reason why everything fell apart in the late seventies. Yeah, they claim that you know Young was a stooge of Grant, and you know that's why he was such a sympathizer of the Mets and the and their case against Seaver and whatnot. But you know how that went down. There was a lot of gossip and scuttlebutt hearsay, and whatnot over who was making what and the why. So, yeah, that got that got complicated. And ultimately, at the end of the day, Steve said, you know what, screw this, trade me, I want out. So, so that was well, you know, it's, in, in, what, what, it's, it's such a rabbit hole to go down, and I'll throw it back to you, Rich, as host. <laughs> but, it, it, you know, at the time, you have M. Donald Grant, who is holding on for dear life to to the the old school ways and and very against free agency and then you have George Steinbrenner who's this young gun from Cleveland. That uh, was part of it. Part of it, yeah. I mean, you're right, Sam. Uh, a lot of the owners were operating under the old school mentality. Uh, George Steinbrenner came in like a cowboy with go- with both guns blaring and said, you know what? We have a system called free agency, and I'm going to utilize it to its fullest potential. He laid it out. He said it, no secret, and he did it. Uh, but I think with the passing of Joan Payson, you know, that Lorinda Rose, Lorinda was already in the process of, uh, you know, seeking bars and winding on, winding down operations, and there was no chance of Donald Grant, you know, just opening up the wallet and, and you know, going full force with something that he knew was coming to an end. I think all of the above are true. Um, All right, so gentlemen, I think that wraps up number 55. Um, Thank you for that walk down memory lane. We've done a lot of that. You know, we're very much in the current world of for a while of uh, of a pandemic and its impact on sports, and then we reminisced uh, 86 and now number 55, and it's been a pleasure to do that. And as we wrap up episode number 55 of the Metzian podcast, I'd like to ask everybody for their last word. Um, and so, Jeff, before I do that, i ask you two things. If you could just remind us uh, what it is you do with Baseball and Barbecue one more time where people can find it, and then give us your last word for tonight. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. And it's always great talking baseball with you guys. Uh, you can find Baseball BBQ on Apple, Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, all the major and even non-major podcast formats. This week uh, we release every two weeks And this Saturday We will be dropping our interview With Ed Hearn 
from the 1986 team, and he was awesome. uh, fantastic. So uh, if you get the opportunity, please tune in, take a listen. We appreciate it. And if uh, you want to get in touch with our show, uh, you can always email us. It's uh, baseballandbbq at gmail.com. My last word is let's go Mets. I mean, I I hope there's a season. I hope the players be able to, players and owners, be able to work it out, come to senses, make sure, you know, get, get everything all the protocols right, and they can play some ball, and just be safe out there, and let's go Mets. Well said, well said. So, Mike, as we, um, and by the way, Mike's way too humble to say this, but Mike was a member of the military, and Mike, uh, on Memorial Day, of course, thank you for your service, and sir, what is your last word for tonight? I thank all my veterans for their service. Uh, Memorial Day, all gave some, but some gave all. Let us remember those who sacrificed everything, including their lives, in defense of our country and to the families. There is no military member without the family. They all are military members. If a husband or a mother, a son, a daughter, an uncle, a cousin, etc., If they're in harm's way, that family is in harm's way. So to all my fellow veterans and to the men and women still in harm's way today, I I bid you well, I bid you safety, I bid you peace, and hope that you return home soon, very soon. Uh, And in the meantime, carry on, soldier. Uh, But let us... Remember that tomorrow, Monday, the actual holiday, remember those who have given their all for this country since way back to the 1700s to the modern day. Let us not forget not one single person. God bless America. Well said. And I'll turn to you, Mr. CEO of the Metzian podcast. What is your last word for tonight? Ditto. Um, just echoing in many ways what Mike just said. It, it's it's tough for me because I, I have been in some fashion not necessarily looking forward to getting closer to this. Um, uh, it, it's crazy to think because it feels longer, but it's almost two years since my dad passed and he passed uh, on Memorial day Eve in 2018. And he uh, did not die at the, uh, in, you know, during a war, but he did die in a veteran affairs facility and he fought in the Vietnam war and he will forever be tied for me, even if it's not always going to fall on uh, May 27th, which was the day he died. It's not always going to fall fall on that day, but it is uh, it's humbling because I do think of death every day. Sometimes it's very haunting, um, and we all have that 
one way or another to look forward to <laughs> in a very morbid sense. Um, very morbid humor there, but it, it, it was an experience for sure because I, I witnessed it and uh, it's very much vivid as, as it would be for anybody uh, in my brain. And um, he got diagnosed with PTSD very retroactively. Uh, and this was just from his time in Saigon and from 66 to 68. And you have to think about it, not just in the context of my dad, but all the others that aren't diagnosed when they come back, how much psychological effect there is that completely gets kind of like brushed aside, whether it's because of the standard stereotype we have for what a man needs to do when they come. You, you have to think about all the people that, that need support. And my dad didn't really, according to the, the way everything went in the diagnosis, didn't get that support until way late, until he was in, in his 50s or 60s. Uh, and so we, we have to remember not just the people who have sacrificed their lives, and, and obviously we've split some of these memories and, and, and celebrations and, and commemorations up in many ways, but whether it's Veterans Day, whether it's Memorial Day, any of these, we need to remember that there are human beings out there that are alive that need to stay that way for one uh, because they could very well take their own lives. Um, but but they, they're also, regardless of what ends up killing them eventually, we need to do all we can to support them now. And we don't do enough whether it's the veteran homeless population or whether it, it, it's, it's the families, like Mike says, that have to deal with these, tra- these people that are traumatized. Um, there, there's many things that I think we need to look at and we need to concern ourselves with, with this uh, on, on a, a much bigger level than we ever have. And, and we need to stop being on both sides of the aisle hypocrites about using the soldier when it is politically viable for us. You, you need to take care of them all the time, and you need to, to operate that way. So thank you, Mike, um, for, for going down that, that path with this and helping to expand my thought process on it. And the last thing I'll say is that I can't wait for the Mets to beat the Yankees out for the division title this year. <laughs> well, let's hope that they have an opportunity to do that and that they, in fact, um, take advantage of that opportunity. So I, I know we always end the show with the only way we know how, but I think given the circumstances, I think given what we just heard from both Sam and Mike about our veterans and about what this day is about and, and honoring those who, as Mike said, have given all. I think it's good just to leave it here. You know, let's leave it on a, on a sort of like a respectful, quiet note. We'll have plenty of uh, podcasts in the future to say let's go Mets. So give them Memorial Day weekend. I hope you guys don't mind. going to change format a little bit and say let's leave those thoughts in the minds of people 
And with that, I will say thank you for listening to the 55th edition of the Metsian Podcast with Sam Rich and Mike. Thank you, Jeff Cohen, once again for joining us. And we wish everyone safety, health, and a reflective and enjoyable Memorial Day weekend. So good night, everybody. Good night, all. Good night, everybody. Good night. Have a Memorial Day. Bye now.